Thanks for joining us for the Changing the Industry podcast, where we try to effectuate change for the better, one conversation at a time. Part of that change is providing help for those that need it. This is why we've partnered with the Institute for Automotive Business Excellence. Whether it's help with sales, operations, or just getting your numbers in order, these folks are some of the very best in the industry. And for our listeners, they'll sit down with you and go over your strengths, your weaknesses, and the opportunities that are in front of you. They'll create a customized plan for how to move forward absolutely free. That's right, free. And if your plan includes one-on-one coaching, they can also help you with that. There's no hard sales pitch, no obligation, just honest help from honest people. So if that's something that you think could benefit you, make sure you click on the link in the show notes. And now, on to the show. I almost got it. <laughs> What's up? What's going on? Come up close to the mic. Am I close said, yeah, you got to yeah. be close on the mic. Yeah, yeah. You if you're not right smelling that that pop filter, it's not. Yeah, you know, if you don't smell the last dude's breath. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there, you there you go. That's, That's exactly what Lucas does. He rubs his nose all. <laughs> mm-hmm. Let me tell you about my experience in Chicago. Okay. Okay. Uh, the executive director, Trisha, of this show, and I had a meeting at ICAR. And so we go up there, and um, I think we both knew we were supposed to have a meeting in, like, North Chicago somewhere, like Northwest Chicago. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to go see U505 downtown. Oh, yeah. And she wanted to go to a baseball game. Now, I should have. Which park did you go to? Wrigley Field. Oh, okay. And That's so, in the north part. Well, like this was way north, like 15 or 20 minutes from Icar. And so, <laughs> long story short, I guess I didn't connect the fact that if she's going to a baseball game, <laughs> there's going to be people at the baseball game. And if there's people at the baseball game, there's traffic at the baseball game. Oh, yeah. You were driving? Oh, yeah. yeah. You weren't taking the metro? No. And no. so, I was downtown and... She sends me a message. She says, hey, we're supposed to be at dinner at like 530. And I was like, where? She said, uh, right next to Icar. And I said, yo, it's four o'clock. Yeah. Like, That's a think, problem. I yeah. don't think we're going to make it. Dude, I rolled in and we still beat everybody else there. Oh, my God. Swear to God. Now, You're drawing like an a-hole though, right? When we, got, hey, when we got there, when we got there, her fingernails were like, Funny oh. colors where she's like. I was getting sick it. driving with him. It's every day GTI. on the way to work. Every day on the way to work, people GTI the whole. It's the the whole street. It's it's GTA whatever. It's it's that's how they drive. Yeah, I mean, like, I, I, one really weird thing about Chicago is is the narrow lanes in some spots. Oh yeah, that is, that's like the weirdest thing to me. It's like, why are the lanes so narrow? You go from like two cars, and then it'll look like you can barely fit yeah. one, and then it's back to two again. It's it's terrible, and then they'll use the part, the shoulder where people are supposed to park. Yeah, and they'll hurry up and get in that to try to see if they can beat like a line of cars, and then come back out in that lane at the end. And sometimes they hit people. Yeah, it's just how it is. And the the cars up there tore all two pieces. <laughs> yeah, they are a mess. Yeah, yeah dude. They pull up to the light. There's like two spots. And this side the cars are supposed to be parking on if they want to, and they'll hurry up and they'll come up to the light. 
And then it's like three cars are ready to drag race all at the same time yeah. to see if this car on the side can hurry up and get out in front before he makes it to the other side. It's insane. I mean, it really is insane. Uh, yeah, it's it's rough. I I mean, I enjoy it. I enjoy the adrenaline rush. It was a rental car, so <laughs> I need to bump and grind a little bit. It doesn't hurt my feelings at all. They don't care anyway. Yeah, no. I mean, every, like I went up and I'm, I was telling the dude, I was like, "Hey, this one's got a scratch." He said, "Bro, you find a car in this lot that does not have a scratch on it." <laughs> I think I, I returned a, a Dodge Charger to the Chicago Enterprise. Yeah, one of the ones I, I rented one for for a month. And I was here from the military, uh, here from like military leave. Mm-hmm. And I rented it for a month while I was here. And I ripped the whole front bumper, the bottom portion off on a, like a, a parking, like one of those, those stumps. And when I went to back up, it ripped the bottom portion off. It just hanging there. Right. I drove it around for like a couple of weeks that way. I never even tried to fix it. I said, to hell with it. Right. And I pulled up at Enterprise and I was like, Hey, man, I, I kind of. He's like, don't even worry about it, man. It's what zip ties are for. You're good, man. We ain't worried about that car. It'll That's go to crazy. auction. That's crazy, dude. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, where is your... That was the worst Chicago story I've ever heard in my life. Mine? Yeah. Yeah. I thought I'd tell you that. The food is really good up there. The food is awesome. Do you want to know some juicy Chicago stories in the future? Kankakee, Illinois, all the way down to Kankakee. Kankakee is one of the most hostile areas rated and like <laughs> there's things i don't want to say because i don't it's obviously going to get put on air sometime right so there's yeah. certain keywords i don't want to use but i tell you some stories from back when i was a kid that uh right. people people they hear me tell it and they're like wow you were that kind of kid i was just hanging around with the wrong people it's not who i was though all right yeah you, you've had a you've got and and i guess i should introduce, introduce our guest you. oh that'd be Rich nice thanks Paso. you're right Ford boss me. Mm-hmm. He's been practicing this whole time. That's good. Uh, He's perfect. Good. I, 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 you, there's Isaac Rodale, right? You know who Isaac is? Uh, I don't know, but he's rubbing his, so I'm okay with that. Yeah. He, he's yeah. like the most brilliant EV trainer ever. Really cool mm-hmm. guy if you ever get a chance to meet. Okay. Um, the windows are distracting you. They, they didn't get to the first, like, on the first episode, but. I know, but By, here towards the end of the day, is it the headache? It might be the headache. It is. I really think he's, bad. or maybe he's just more relaxed now. He's not yeah. so. Yeah, I'm I know no, what this episode. No. We, we're going to have a good time with this episode. We're going to we're going to talk smack. If it's not a good time, I'm going to be a little upset because I'm getting a little tired, bro. You are always and, upset. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like if you weren't upset, I would genuinely be worried. <sighs> what did you have for breakfast? A cookie. That's all you've eaten today? Yes, that's all I've eaten today. That's, I, that's what I was trying to tell you. I've had a cookie today. Okay. I'm sorry. It's okay. I'm, uh, we do this all the time. We're good. Do you? Yeah. You don't seem like you do. I do the keto shakes in the morning and lunchtime. So even the morning those are, and lunch? Mm-hmm. So those are only 250 calories a piece. Okay. That's so, not bad. Yeah. So You like, need just some protein, though. You do. I'll eat flies. So the keto, the keto shakes have some protein in it, but they also have like beta-hydroxybutyrate and stuff in there as well. So there's other sources of fuel other than just that yeah. that your body and can use. Fuel. Yeah. And I, I love it. You know, yeah. I, I lost my first a uh, little over 100 pounds on it, started my own group. Then I kind of fell off, fell by the wayside when COVID hit. Yeah. Then about four weeks ago, five weeks ago, I started doing it again. I started losing like my face started getting skinnier. Yeah. My clothes started fitting better. I noticed that. Yeah. And then I'm like, that. okay, I've lost like. 28 pounds now 
maybe I just need to stay on it. And then I've even been selective since we've been here at the event. Like, yeah. I'll eat. I'm wrong, but I'm picking and choosing the yeah. best. Lucas and I have been telling you about Parts Tech for a while now and how it gives you access to unlimited parts and tire vendors and direct integration with over 35 shop management systems. And now they've just launched a new referral program. All you have to do is open your Parts Tech account, go to My Shop, and click on the Rewards tab. There you'll find your referral URL, which you can share via email, text message, or on your social media. If your referral signs up for a new account and places five orders in the first 30 days, Parts Tech will send you a $100 gift card. That's it. Nothing else is needed. Your referrals can get you $100 just for using Parts Tech, which, by the way, is absolutely free to get started with. So if you're using Parts Tech already, start sharing that referral link. And if you haven't signed up for Parts Tech yet, what are you waiting for? Click on the link in the description. Or go to partstech.com forward slash podcast. That's partstech.com forward slash podcast. Hey, one more thing. If you find out that your shop management system doesn't integrate with Parts Tech, it's time to upgrade. David and I use what we believe to be the very best system on the market, Shopware. With unmatched features like Parts GP Optimizer and DVX, which is their digital vehicle experience, Shopware really is way more than just a shop management software. With it, you'll be able to create an immersive and interactive experience for your client, setting you apart from everyone else using run-of-the-mill software. Are you ready to upgrade? Click the link in the show notes to get started. Best I can to keep the sugar down as much as possible, and I still feel great even being here. So The, the problem with keto is, is just sustainability. It's almost impossible. I can, here's the thing, though, is that I don't know if it's the fact that like my dad's got diabetes and maybe um, I've got issues there. My blood sugar looks good though. Um, blood sugar did look good. Yeah. But like I feel better when I eat keto. Yeah, me too. I, I, and for me, the feel better is worth. That makes it sustainable. But then we go do stuff like this and we go somewhere yeah, that has crack yeah. rolls and like <laughs> I can't hear here's, here's my question to you though. Hmm. Because of the time I did and the amount of weight I've lost already. What makes it not sustainable? Nobody can actually 100% answer that question. A lot of the foods that we're eating are already natural foods that we have had, and we continue if to you, have. If you are measuring your ketone level, no. You, if you're met, well, okay, then that's what I'm saying is if you're measuring your ketone levels, you will see how little it takes for you to fall out of ketosis. Oh, sure. And if you fall out yeah. of ketosis, then you're not really doing anything. All you're doing is that, cutting out. That's that's not true though, because because like if you read, um, like what was it, the sugar lie or any of those where they talk mm -hmm. about the like bread carbs processed stuff, dude. If I eat carbs, I puff up, I swell yeah. up, yeah. my joints it, start to hurt. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But I'm I'm saying though, you're if to fall out of ketosis means that your body's no longer using no longer using ketones as fuel and and so then the all you're going to end up doing is gaining weight because you're you're packing in an immense amount of calories with a very small amount of food and i like to eat a lot of food i, I like I, to eat a lot of food i guess it comes back to the person if yeah. like like you're talking about a lot of that has to do with like discipline in general and me yeah. i loved it so much that i was I did almost an entire year and then still had my cholesterol and everything checked on nothing but organs, meat, fat, bacon, beef, whatever. 
and I had only green supplement drinks. I didn't actually go eat vegetables or anything almost an entire year. Yeah. Like when I got my blood panels and stuff done and the doctor was like, how do you feel? And I said, well, I feel great. And she said, your LDL looks amazing. Your HDL is awesome. Your triglycerides are completely in check. I don't know how you're doing this, but. But that sounds more like the carnivore diet. It right. doesn't sound like. But they keto. incorporate the two together. And yeah, but the w- keto, see that a lot of people conflate and that's what ends up causing some confusion. Keto is high fat mm. and then medium to low protein and almost no carbs. Blood. So you, your green drink's fine if it's a low carb green drink. Where right? do you get that info though? Because here's, here's, there's, there's multiple different doctors that teach it multiple different ways sure. and influencers that, and it's not a, if you went back to the way that it was done way, way, way back when, when they were like, when they're talking about the Inuit and stuff being in natural ketosis all the time yeah, because yeah. they didn't have everything else, it's different than when we do it today. And there's so many different variations of it. Yeah, like a, a dirty keto or a and, clean. And like you look at Jason Whitrock. Jason Whitrock teaches one type of keto where yeah. it's extremely aggressive. That that's the one that got me into trouble. You know, I told you I flew back with a urologist from Denver. You know that that and he he laid it out perfectly. He's like, man. He's like, that's where your kidney stone came from. He's like, you, if you eat that way and you set yeah. yourself up, he said, you're asking for kidney stones. And he said, so you have to do something very aggressive to keep from getting kidney stones. That's what kicked me in a whole different direction. Is well, how, with, how aggressive was your? My Originally, it was super aggressive. I, I was counting carbs, counting calories, and I would not go over five carbs a day, five net carbs a day, oh, yeah. and had no sugar alcohols, no nothing. And so I ended up like I felt great. I had tons of energy. Yeah, you and, feel you feel amazing when and you. And so if you keep it, especially like I was fifteen net carbs would be my max, mm-hmm. but I was typically around five, like you're saying. Well, and so what and I you still count calories. You're still you trying feel to keep on, like completely different. Where I screwed up is that I went and I was lifting one night, and and we had gone. We had this like a timeshare condo, and the whole family and everybody was there. And I would give myself like a carb day and I would eat carbs and it, it kept getting worse and worse. I started oh, with like I would have that. one meal and then it would be like I would have a day and then it would be a weekend and then it, it had slipped a little bit. Well, the first time that I ever like went balls to the wall with carbs, I we we get pizza and we eat the pizza and I decided I'm going to work out and work this off. So I like really lifted heavy and I, when I got back to the room, I was hot. I was burning up. And so there was a wild cherry Pepsi in the fridge. And I just oh, opened no. it and killed the whole two liter, right? And so I wake up in the middle of the night and I'm like, hey, Alex. She's like, what? I'm like, I don't feel so good. And she's like, whatever. And she goes back to sleep. <laughs> and um, a few minutes later, I'm like, hey, I don't, I don't think this is a normal not feel good. And she's like, okay, whatever. Like, And she's very grouchy when you look yeah. up. And so I'm like, all right, this is just belly pain. I'm going to go to the toilet. Mm. And so I get up and I like go to the toilet. I'm trying to be quiet and go to the front, you know, bathroom. And (laughs) I'll never forget this, dude, because I'm like, it's coming out of both ends at this point. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, it is miserable. And I'm like, this is not normal. Like, this is about food poisoning or something. So I'm telling the urologist about this and he's just dying. Right. (laughs) And I'm like, dude. 
I think I'm going to die. I like, I really think I might die. I think this might be the end of my life. This might be it. And he's just like <laughs> laughing. It's like, this is the funniest shit ever. So I like go back in there and I'm like writhing in pain, going in and out of consciousness, laying in the floor. Yeah. And I'm like, I feel like I'm going to die, dude. And uh, my wife's like, would you either shut up or go to the hospital? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, okay, fine, fine. And so I end up at the hospital. I go in, I like take my wallet and I throw it at the person behind the counter. And she's like, I just need your information. I'm like, I don't want to talk. Just take my wallet. I go back and the first thing I said to the the nurse or whatever in there is like, I don't want you know, any pain pills or anything like that. It's like, dude, I know you're in pain. Like I can tell you're in pain. Now, this is, I'm not thinking that. Tell me what's going on. And I'm like, I don't know. If I knew, I wouldn't be here, you know. And so they go back and they sit me down on the the hospital bed. When I sit down, the pain goes away. I get up and I'm walking out the door and the doctor, she's walking in and as I'm walking out, she puts her hand on my chest and she pushes me right back into the room and she said, you're not going anywhere. And I said, I feel better now. I'm fine. And she said, no, you're not. I said, I'm completely fine. Everything is good. And she holds out this jug and she says, pee in this. And I said, "Uh, but I'm fine. I'm going to go. And she said, no, you've got a kidney stone. And it's probably a bad one from the way that you're expressing yourself. Yeah. And so sure enough, kind of had a kidney stone. They wouldn't do an x-ray and everything else. And that urologist was like, man, they've got a way to break those up now, don't they? Oh, he said, don't do that. 10X? He said, sound waves? He said, man, he said, you want to talk about the worst pain in your life? He said, if they ever have to go in and get one out, he said, you can just like, he said, it is. So you have to pass it? He said, it is. Is there any way to break it up once it forms? I have no idea. But he said, well, that's what he tells me is he said, oh, his exact words were he said, that's where you fucked up. And I said, what do you mean? He said, you drank that two liter Pepsi. And he said, it caused it to break loose. He said, the acid in the Pepsi broke it off. And he said, like, there's probably more floating around in there. And then he's like, hey, is your, like, do you get these, like, almost like a pulsation or something or like a spasm near your kidney? It's like, yeah. He's like, yeah, you got more kidney stones. I'm like, ah, man. Well, keto's not going to cause that. Oh, yeah. He said it absolutely will cause it. He says it's probably one of the number one causes. Well, no, what was what is it within the keto diet? Because you're he just said eating that, fat. He said that um, it causes a certain type of acid to build up in your urine when you're on keto. He said keto is extremely hard on your kidneys. It is diuretic, yeah. And he said so. The problem is, is he said you end up, but building, you stay. You have to stay hydrated. Yeah, like and you he, have well, to drink an immense said, amount of water. Gonna, if you're going to do it, you need to do that. But he said, if you if you do keto, he said, sooner or later, you will get kidney stones. I mean, I, I did it for a long time, and, and I felt great on it. And I stayed hydrated. I drank all the time, though. What what made you stop? I just, I moved, you know, ch- lifestyle changed and COVID and then trying to figure out stresses at the shop and stuff. And then finally, one day, I was like, I didn't pre- prepare for today. I was on like a three or four day fast. Yeah. And I've been up to seven days, Dr. Jason Fung. Yeah. I've, um, and I like read his book and stuff and Dr. Eric Westman and the, mm-hmm. the power of fasting. And I felt amazing. Well, it was a day where I was extremely stressed. I yeah. moved and jobs and everything else. And I had no food around me to fall back on. I was not prepared. And I went out and just started eating pizza. And right after that, COVID. And yeah, I was like, Life this happened. Is, Life happened. See, that's what I'm talking about. That's what I'm talking about. It's unsustainable because you have to be very, you have to be very careful. Like, what's a quick go to? It's like eggs. 
Yeah. That's I, a quick And I wasn't too. prepared. Yeah. Quick. And, and, and you're like, sometimes you just flipping pizza. You just want yeah. pizza. Did, yeah. did you notice that the weight went back on in a different way? Yeah. 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 You're not that old. You, you no. look like a baby. How old are you? 37. Yeah. See? Both of you look like babies. What happened to you? Life. A shop ownership. You'll get there. Hey, this is what, this is what in about six years, you look in the mirror and you're going to see salt and pepper wrinkles and a disdain for life. <laughs> so, uh, David, I'm, I'm going to, I am going to, I didn't get the answer, by the way. I'm going to be very about, careful because I don't want it to turn into an interview because David hates interviews and dude will like pitch the biggest fit of anybody no, you've ever seen. And if, if I don't phone. give him opportunity, to like was it did you have a uric acid stone yes is that what it was yep if i don't give him opportunities to derail the conversation mm-hmm. and turn this into like five thousand different it, topics instead and, of hey one. hey real quick so the one we did this morning he's like yeah i didn't get to finish my story <laughs> david hates stories but no no stories are good which one we, we did a, we did, uh, a we podcast did an out podcast uh but uh, when we were up there talking, he found a stopping point, and that lady came up to me afterwards. And I don't remember what was her name. Was that was that Cecil's wife, or or who's the the lady that was standing Cecil's at the wife. end of the like where where we were speaking at? I couldn't remember. She said, where, "Where where's what happened? What's the end of the story?" And I said, "Have to go watch the video." Yeah, I said, "Well, I said well, Lucas found a stopping point because he needed to stay on track." And I get it. Yeah. And I yeah. said, "Here it is." And she was like, "Oh my god." I yeah. can't. I can't believe all that happened. And I, you know, it was it's crazy. Well, so David here hates stories, and well, so why do just you keep be, saying that. That's not I, true. I'm just pointing this out. I'm just saying that dude, dude couldn't finish the story because if, we kept jumping off of different topics. See what I mean, like, so if 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 he derails you, mm-hmm. you can't ignore him and just keep talking. <laughs> but I, I, you've got a like a super duper unique, like one in a million story. You've yeah. been through. Excuse my language, earmuffs kids. You've been through some fucking shit. Yeah, tell us a little bit about it, and then we'll get, we'll jump in and we'll talk about the shop stuff a little bit. But I'll fast forward through some of it, just in a. I I I want you at least tell the hard stuff because there's a lot of people out there who will resonate with that and who yeah. will connect with that, and they'll say, "I didn't know that." And here I am. I've been telling myself I can't, I can't, I can't. And you can. And there's people who have been through way worse than what I've been through, and they're okay. Yeah. So my mother, she she got pregnant with us or with me when she was 18, and then my sister when she was 19. What ended up happening is my grandparents really treated their kids poorly growing up. Back in the day, it was everybody got a whooping for doing something wrong. You yeah. got grounded. They weren't afraid to put their hands on their kids back then. Yeah. And all their kids got that treatment. You did what you were told when you were told to do it. Okay. So as generations change and our grandparents and parents learn the world's changing, they change the way they do things too. So grandpa thought, well, we could just adopt him from our daughter. Mm-hmm. Huh? Who does that? Who tries to take their grandson away yeah. from... She was doing all right with me. Well, they got custody of it, of me. There's enough money back in the day you could make a court system pretty much do anything like right. that. And they had enough money, so they got custody of me, and she went on about her life, and uh, they passed away. And it- Hey, everyone. It's Lucas. I'm sorry to jump in, but I thought it was important to come and say this. 
You know, I'm often asked, why do we always talk about Kim and Brian Walker and shop marketing pros on the show? It's because we genuinely believe in their product. Why do I use them for my own marketing? In fact, they're building me a new website right now. It's not cookie cutter. I kept getting on Facebook and every shop looked the exact same. I didn't want to be that. And it's not just that. It's that they're part of your team. When you hire them to do your marketing, they get to know you. They know what you believe. They know what you say and they know why you do what you do. And they share that with your clients. That's huge. And beyond all of that, probably the most important factor in all of this is they stand behind their work. So don't wait. Go today and get your free marketing analysis from Shop Marketing Pros. They're genuinely our friends and they're genuinely here to help shop owners have a better life. Click on the link in the show notes for your free marketing analysis today. That's right. It's free. doesn't cost you a dime. Getting custody of my sister before they passed away as well, because now this time my mother was on drugs. Okay. My uncle and an aunt by marriage ended up getting custody of us because they were the only brother and sister that could take care and make it a full family with like a mom, a dad, the kids, stable jobs, both of them. My uncle tried to get us, but he was a truck driver. And they're like, what are you going to provide for children while you're on the road all the time? Yeah. You know, you don't have a wife or anything. So that was a shot. You know, that that couldn't happen. So I ended up seeing growing up a lot of different people coming in and out of the home. And, you know, here I am living off um, uh, Devon and Western in Chicago, mm-hmm. a three-story apartment building. And eventually... My uncle leaves my my mom. I was so young at the time I was calling her mom. I didn't know yeah. any different. Right. And I had seen pictures of me with another woman, an older woman, which was my grandmother, and another woman, which was my mother. But I never put two and two together. I always felt like I was in the wrong family. Right. Like this didn't right. belong to me in my life or whatever. This was not yeah. my mother. But that's all I knew. So I kept calling her mom. And these other two ladies that I had seen in these these pictures – were indeed my mother and my right. grandmother. I just never put the connection together right. completely. So in and out of this home, um, she, my uncle leaves, leaves us with her. I'm going to Daniel, Daniel Boone Elementary School in Chicago. And I think it's like the Rogers Park area is what they call it. Mm-hmm. And about the sixth grade, I get pulled out of school. She's like, dating potentially going to end up marrying this or the right hand man of like a, an Irish mafia drug Lord in Chicago. Wow. And this man is the one that called the shots for the drug ring. The, when this, the boss man, which was her grandfather would tell people what to do, where to go, where the money needed to be delivered or picked up or drugs. This man would enforce it and make it done. Well, right. he's now with my aunt. Oh man. And this happened for years. My aunt's 27, 28 years old. And this guy's like 65, 66 years old when they got together. He ends up getting her pregnant with a couple kids. I'm living this life of seeing these drugs and stuff in and out and different people my whole life, like kind of growing up in and out. I don't know who these people are. And they're storing this large amount of cocaine for this operation in our apartment. Holy crap. And then like the sixth grade, they pull me out They make up some fictitious story. Like my birth father came and took me to another state. The school never followed up to figure out why we can't transfer his records to the next school or any of that stuff. And they started making me part of this 
you get a garage door opener and then you would go down these random alleyways and you would push the trigger on the garage door to open the garages. And whatever one opened, you would go in that garage and close it behind you and you'd search through the garage and find the kilo or two kilos of cocaine and then you'd transport it back. Holy crap. And there was like large amounts of cash involved and guns and stuff. And we had like a big 30-some gallon garbage can that was in this room with a padlock on it in our apartment that was full of cocaine all the time. Kilos upon kilos upon kilos. I mean, like 17, 18, 19 kilos, 20 kilos. Right. This was millions of dollars worth of stuff at the time. There's a yeah. a newspaper article. It's 13-year-old boy. I, I always find it by 13-year-old boy turns in parent, Chicago, 1999. That's what I type in Google. It's long, but that's the article comes up. And then they say it's, they said something about 17 pounds. It wasn't 17 pounds. It was like 17 kilos that was worth $4.5 million. You were the 13-year-old? I was the 13-year-old. You turned in there. You thought yours was, was parents, but it was your aunt and so I, I was boyfriend. Getting, I did. I was getting abused. And I couldn't figure out why I was the only kid out of all the kids that were there that would get abused. I mean, there were days where she would send me to the store to get something that she wanted. And it was like... Oh, you remember the bags of okie doke popcorn, the Flaming Hots? Yeah. She fiend on that stuff when she was high. And she loved her Diet Coke and her more menthol cigarettes. And as a kid, you used to be able to run to a liquor store and you could buy your parents cigarettes. They didn't care as long as you had a note or something like that. But, you know, times have changed. You can't do that no more. I used to go pick up her cigarettes and stuff for her and pay the bills at the currency exchange right on the corner of Western and Devon. I think still to this day, that same one's there. The neighbors would see me running the neighborhood doing all these family things that you would normally see an adult doing, it was a kid doing. So yep. by the time I turned 13 years old, I'd run away several times. There's scars and stuff all over my body where of skin missing in my back and stuff where this lady had literally beat me, torture me, strapped my hands and feet down and just for, you know, an hour, hour and a half. Holy shit. Dude. Blood down my back, blood down my legs and stuff like that until I couldn't walk. I mean, I've got scars in my knees where she'd stick me in the corner in like the kitchen and just start throwing knives at me with the two little kids and tell them, grab it, throw it at him. And it was a game to them. And um, 13 years old, I kind of got tired of it. And I'm standing in in this, I, she had just, that, that day she just got done choking me out pretty bad. And the tub was full of hot water. The water heater was turned up so high in the apartment building, she filled it up with hot water. And she took me and shoved me down inside it and was holding my head underneath the water. And my body began to go numb. She would pull me out, let me breathe, and put me back. And put me back. And she would do it long enough to where I, I was about to pass out, but I never – she would let me get enough air and then put me back down. And she did this for like seven or eight minutes, ten minutes straight, and my body went limp. I couldn't move. So she drug me out of the tub and she left me on the floor. And it took me a couple hours to come to. My body started getting the, the blood and I get my muscle, my feeling and stuff back. That was the last day that I could take it anymore. Uh, I was standing in the, in, the, in the dining room. Everything was dark. They were watching TV in the front living room, which was turned into her bedroom with mirrors all over the walls. And there was a security system underneath the entertainment system and it would face the bed. She would make sex tapes with random guys on that bed in that living room with all the mirrors could be a co-worker of the old man that she was with, the shot caller. It could be 
anybody that they know, his son would come in from Kentucky and sleep with her sometimes and they would make videos and there was just hundreds of these tapes that they would record doing this stuff. And as a kid, that was nothing to me. I was exposed to that yeah. stuff. That was nothing. I, you walk in on them. Oh, okay. I'll go back. You know, what the hell was she doing with the videos? She would save them for herself. They would watch them together because of his age. I mean, he wasn't functioning all the time, but he could yeah. still function. And then he would jump in the videos with his son sometimes. Whoa. I walked Whoa. into one, the room one time with the door open, and I seen both of them on the camera with her at the same time. And here I am, you know, 11, 12, 13 years old seeing this stuff. That day that she did that dunking me in the water and stuff, and my, I knew I was going to die. Yeah, and I had already, yeah. I had yeah. already, I had already run away several times, and it seemed like the older I got, the the beatings got worse, the cut, the cuttings, the stabbings and stuff got worse, and I ran. I waited till it got dark out. I waited till they were in the front room, relaxed. The kids were in bed, and I looked at the front door and I was like, turn the lock, deadbolt back, switch, drop the chain, run, and I'm standing there looking at the door. Can I do this? Am I going to be able to do it fast enough before they come right out of the front room that's only five feet away? I got to do it. And I'm convincing myself and I'm standing there like, you can do it, dude. Just do it. Just go. Don't ever come back. Just don't stop running. Yeah. And I did it. It was perfect, too. It was boom, slide, slide. I mean, I had it down. I was practicing this in my head. And I ran down the stairs. I left the door open. I ran uh, away from the house as far as I could. And I just kept running and running and running and running. And then I never quit walking. I walked and walked and walked and walked for like hours through the night into the next day and then kind of started getting dark the next night again. And I never quit because I knew I didn't want to be there anymore. And there was yeah. a, a 18, 19 year old teenager standing on the street. He's, hey, young man, what's what's going on? Why are you on the street? So the street lights are out. Aren't you supposed to be home? Back in the day, our parents told us when the street lights are off, you're home. Yeah. And that's how we were raised. Yeah. Well, he sees me on the street and he's like, why are you out here? And he sees the tears and stuff in my eyes and I'm all banged up and this wound is still fresh in my head, still scabbing over. And and I just look tattered up and beat up. And uh, he says, I think I need to help you, man. Come here. Come here. And I go over to him and, and I just let it out. I'm crying. I'm bawling my eyes out in between this guy's hands. He's holding my head. How old were you? Uh, 13. Um, and he, he said, we got to call the cops. We have to. Yeah. yeah. So he got the police involved. The detective, she started crying immediately when I got into the police station. And she took me into a room and put me in a gown and came in and started taking pictures. And they had like this paper and there were areas of the body with like hands. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And they were circling all the puncture wounds all over my body. And then she just was bawling her eyes out and couldn't finish. And then a male detective came in. And he finished doing yeah. all of, and it was just, it looked like connected dots all over my body and stuff like that. And they were like, this is crazy, man. You know, can you tell us where the drugs and stuff are? And then I instructed them. I said, look, the old man gets off work at about 530 at night, six o'clock. If you park on the western side, western is here and Devon is here. If you park in a big open par parking lot, you can go through the gangway. That between the, the two garages and go up the back and they won't know you're coming and you go up to the second story and if you go through the back the kitchen whatever however you guys get in walk through the kitchen 
And as soon as you leave the kitchen, you'll be in the dining room and there's a door to your left. And then immediately on the right, there's a padlock door right there. All the drugs are in the far corner. The guns are under the bed. The money's on the back of the door that you're going to go through. There's like $1,000 stacks. I mean, I was, I learned how to divvy it out. I learned how to cut it. I learned how to weigh it. I learned how to do everything that you would do to sell drugs as, you know, 10, 11 years old. Yeah. And here, go put the spoon in the sink after we're done cutting it with baking soda and stuff like that. Lick the spoon. Yeah. No, 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 mom. No, mom. I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. No, no. Do it. And then you lick it and it feels like your tongue's falling back in your mouth. Your mouth goes numb and stuff like that. So I was, ex I was exposed to Coke at 10, 11 years old. Yeah. And that was a game to her. That was a way for her to pull me in and make me feel like I was a part of the operation. Yeah. My first foster parent was uh, Miss Gloria Jean Johnson. I lived uh, 63rd and Green. It's an all black neighborhood. Went to an all black school. No white people. Only me. And she, she, I call her mom to this day. Uh, she took care of me for a while. And then my parents, um, Stan Stanzik and Antoinette Stanzik, they were my second foster family. They're still my mother and father today. But the foster care system is so corrupt and so dismantled in general that they were letting counselors and caseworkers call shots that superiors should have made and not yeah. them. And if they don't like the way you look, talk, the way you act, they can pull the child out of the home, even though the child is very well taken care of and in good order. So they moved me from Miss Johnson's house to the Stanzics. And I was with them. I was very happy. Romeoville, Illinois, yuppie area, very nice school, very nice homes, all brand new. Something that I'd never experienced before. Real love, you know, between these two foster yeah. families, Miss Johnson and the Stanzics. And then they moved me from home to home to home to home. And then, you know, nine foster homes later. What was the justification for bouncing you from home to home? Some were temporaries in between. Um, some were really bad excuses that I never actually ne ever understood. I didn't understand what happened to me until I was like 25 years old. And I yeah. just started going to UTI. My father's the financial director there, the Stanzics. Really? He's the financial director there. So I come back from Iraq. I'm out of the military. I get all my surgery and stuff done. We didn't get into that later portion of my life. And my dad sits me down one day while, while I'm in his office. And he's like, I called you to the office, not to interrupt your class, but I have, I've had something weighing on my mind. And I just want to tell you exactly what happened when you were a kid that I've never told you. You didn't get pulled out of our home because you did anything wrong. And I know for years, you probably thought you did something wrong. You disappointed us or you were a bad kid. It wasn't. It was the people running the system that didn't like me and your mom. And they used that as a punishment to us because your caseworker hated us. She didn't like the way we parented and we did think what well, they were like the most awesome parents ever because my family is very large and there's a lot of children involved in in my family meaning their family yeah. that i could call mom and dad today and you know dad always had me um when i was there he'd always be like well go fix this go i'll pay you that you know and then let's let's have like a savings envelope let's have your spending envelope 75% goes in savings, 80% goes in savings, the other goes in your pocket. So he taught me early on how to work. Go fix this, go fix that in the garage, go tear up the lawn and let's put all new sod and stuff down. So through the transition of going to all these different homes, I would always find my way gravitating back to the Stanzics, my mother and father today. And then I spoke, you know, later on, I wanted out of the foster care system and at 17 years old, I was like, 
I'm done with this. I want emancipated. I want to be my own adult. Yeah. So my foster parent, the Hammonds, the uh, Donna and Dan Hammond, great foster parents it, in um, Bradley, Illinois. Uh, they, uh, he signed my lease for me, helped me get into my own apartment and stuff like that. I uh, became a janitor at the YMCA from midnight to like four o'clock in the morning. And then I'd leave and go off to the job site. And I worked with a, a guy named Brian St. Aubin from Innovative Insulation. He gave me a shot at a young age to come out and work for him and learn how to start blowing cellulose insulation. All brand new homes, retrofit old homes, you know, old barn homes and stuff like that. Yeah. And I learned trades early on. I'd pour concrete and, and do siding and stuff like that. And I went to work for these different companies. And then I became a supervisor at Chicago Tribune. And I left the trades for a little bit. And I went like 19 years old to go be a supervisor and run employees. I would go in at 1 o'clock in the morning, download all new new subscribers and stuff like that. By the way, I dropped out of high school. I never finished high school at the time. It was just too much for me through all the different homes yeah. and stuff like that. I, I wanted to be done with all that. And, how, uh, how do those parents handle that? I, I don't know that I could. I, don't, I couldn't take a kid in. A kid like you, yeah. you provide them a home, stability, and then someone just takes them from you? Like I couldn't handle it. The cold, the cold truth to this whole thing is the money. It, they get, the, whose money? They, the, so there's, there's a couple ways that this works that I didn't know about until I was leaving foster care, mm -hmm. I got this notice in the mail stating that uh, what my grandfather's social security was used for. And because my grandfather had so much social security like stowed away, the, the state can either take their money, like deceased parents, grandparents, and stuff like that, or they go like from the taxpayer's money or however the, the agencies are funded. But because he had so much money put away that nobody ever disclosed to me they were using that money to fund the monthly check for me to be in these foster homes. So you might, a, a regular child with no medical conditions and stuff like that, a foster parent might make close to $500 a month for. Special needs child, they might get close to $850, $900 a month for. And a lot of these foster families, like a lot of them are really good. I'm not talking bad about them. There's definitely a need for it, just like fostering dogs and everything else. There's a need for it. But a lot of these families will get so caught up into, well, our home's big enough. Let's get another child and another child. You get five or six children at, you know, 500 to $900 a pop on top of your regular yeah. job at the end of the month. You're making some pretty good cash when it's all said and done. Go to Aldi's, do some cheap shopping for food and stuff like that. Give them the bare minimum. Stick them downstairs in your home. You live upstairs. And, and, and you know, it's interesting because. It's grotesque, though. It is. That's a certain level of monster. I don't know. The, what's interesting to me is that you talk about all of them, but there's a difference about your parents when yeah. you talk about them. Yeah. There's something different about that. What's different about that? They never made you feel like you were anything other than... than Part of the family. Yeah. Yeah, you can tell. But I don't know how you can get into that situation... With the children that are coming out of those situations like that and not want to do that for them. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. You, you, you see what I'm saying? Like you just you just want to provide them a home. Right. But see, I didn't I didn't want to be a statistic and they were they were loving enough, even though I was pulled out of their home multiple times where I, I knew that I had somebody that loved me and cared for me. I just had to make it to a point in my life where I can enjoy that love and care 
and be a part of their life and love and care for them consistently without moving from home to home. Yeah. And my answer to that was emancipation. I want to emancipate. Yeah. I want out of the system. I want to be my own adult so I can go back to my family that loved and cared for me. And, um, you know, it was awesome. I, I, I got emancipated. Uh, I continued my life, you know, with my, my parents from time, but I had my own apartment. I never went back home at se after 17 years old. I never went back home to live. And I went to the military and I spent some time in the military, got hurt in the military. Um, I was in uh, Operation Iraqi Freedom 2007 to 2009. Uh, we were the first tour through that they told us that you're going to be 15 months. Um, so we, we went for 15 months and uh, I ended up getting like a mobile dysentery. It screwed up my digestive. I got pictures and stuff on Google. I used to be a big dude, big shoulders. I was all massive and stuff because my answer to all the anger and the things that like have happened to me in my life is – I would lift. I would just eat and I would just lift. And I was getting huge. I got like yeah. 235, 245, 255. And dudes were like, this is a big dude, man. And then I ended up, uh, I was outside in the rain in 2008 and it felt great. And I didn't know why people were screaming at me to get back in the building. And I ran back in the building when my lieutenant came out and was like, what's possible? Get back in the building. So I go back in the building and I was like, what's wrong? And he's like, this is not clean rain, man. This is like the sewage spills and stuff around here. They, oh, they don't have no. solid like sewers over there. It's all busting out of the ground in spots. Yeah. You can't be out here in this rain. And I got sick. I was throwing up like black blood. I was losing a ton of weight. I couldn't keep like I was sh sh crapping on myself. Yeah. I was, I, I, I almost died. Yeah. And the aid station. Hold on. You're going to have to describe this rain thing here. I don't understand. It, you thought it was, was it? Water coming up from the ground is spraying no, on it's, you. No, it's raining, it like is regular raining. rain. And I'm standing outside in like 120 degree weather over there. That feels good. And I get it that. felt amazing. Is it because the water that's evaporating to feed the rain is, is so contaminated? Yeah. That's so messed up. Yeah. There's areas yeah. where you, like you can literally see it like seeping out of the ground where they don't have like real sewer systems and you stuff. You hear that in like Brazil and stuff that mm -hmm. in Brazil – in in the real rough parts of, of the cities they just dump the sewage because you yeah. you go into a bucket and then they just throw it out the window and it just runs down the streets yeah. but you never hear that oh by the way the side effect also is that don't go out in the rain because all of that is going up into the air wasn't it like the back in the day we ended up getting it was like the plague or something like yeah. that because that's how people used to dispose of things yeah i mean it's same yeah. concept. that's always been the that's always been the 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 deal is that, uh, apparently life expectancy was always very short all the way up until they had sewage yeah like we have good sewers now you don't have to crap into a bucket all of a sudden <laughs> our life expectancy shot 20 years because yeah. you weren't getting sick so yeah, you so get massively sick I, I and i had to be like escorted to the bathroom, uh, my sergeant would take me from like where we were at, and he would like walk with me with his were arm they not around. Treating me. this, they were. They were trying to figure out what it was. They were about to fly me to Germany because it was getting so bad, and then they found there was finally like a breakthrough. I don't know if it was like penicillin or whatever it was that they gave me yeah. with some combination. All of a sudden, I started to come out of it, and they were able to treat it. But I never actually was able to seek professional care. So um, you're like out in the field, and they're just giving you whatever they got. Just so there's like. There's I, there's Baghdad, and then there's Solder City, 
and we were outside of it. Solder City was never really completely cleared. Still, still, you know, to that day, a lot of mechanized units and stuff didn't want to go through there because there's a lot of bombs and stuff still on the road, still built into the walls. There's still a lot of attacks. We just had a uh, an XO of one of the companies actually get his like face blown off or something like that because they tried to go through the area and an EFP went off and took off his face. So we're in like this little compound right outside of this little nook where everything happens. And there was really nowhere to go. And I'm stuck in this compound with minimal help in a small aid station. And they're trying to do everything that they can. So there was either they fly me out to Germany now or they try to do everything they can to stabilize me right there. And they eventually ended up getting it. But I never had the proper medical like. Yeah. They were like, this is like some type of a mobile dysentery thing from rain. And, and after that, my digestive system went to crap. Uh, later on in life after getting out of the military and having my ACL and everything fixed, uh, the VA was like, you definitely have some problems with your digestive system. It's, it's, it's not normal. And I would get these like excruciating pains where I would just be laying in bed and it would be like you were taking a dagger and like, or like, you know, the, the meat puller things for like you make pulled pork. And it, it felt like somebody was trying to rip open your stomach and I would be in pain on the ground, like crying, like literally grown man in tears crying because it hurt so bad and and i i checked myself into the va and and they were like this dude's got some problems man you like you need to stay away from a lot of the roughage it's going to inflame a lot of things that are going to get into little pockets and things down there more solid vegetables when you eat them don't be afraid of eating meats and stuff like that right just right now because that that may be more subtle to your Mm -hmm. digestive system than a bunch of like roughage so you know, and that's how I ended up finding keto yeah, and stuff like that eventually in the future. And I started losing the weight and stuff all over again. And um, I, how I got in this industry from all that is when I was in the military, mm-hmm. I had a lot of people come up to me and be like, hey, you're pretty good at fixing things and stuff like that. Yeah. You know, could you, you know, I was doing brake jobs and tires and everything else. And, right. and I'm like. Uh, I'm taking in people's cars, doing customization, and then I start buying my own like Camaros and Mustangs while I'm on base. And my, I ended up. There's so much more to this story than all this, but I, we're not going to get into all of it. It's it's it's. Uh, I ended up meeting somebody after you know being two years abstinent, no sexual stuff, no nothing with anybody, just just me myself, and uh, being deployed and being in the military and stuff and soaking all that in. When I came back, I met a lady at a local strip club. Uh, <laughs> Uh, the guys wanted to take me out for my birthday. They said, Hey man, you're, you're 23 years old. You want to go out for your birthday and stuff? And I'm like, of course I do. Where are we going? Oh, we're going to go to this, this strip club over here. And I'm like, Oh, I've never been to one of them before. What is that's like the nudie lady thing. Right. And I'm like, yeah. Okay. I mean, I don't know how I'm going to be right. like, I've never been before. And I walk in and there's this like Asian girl standing there and I'm like, bro, she's hot, like really hot. And they're like, oh, yeah, she's here all the time. She's like the security lady. She takes your money at the front door. But she used to be a dancer back in the day. And I'm like, man, I want to talk to her. Like, yeah, you don't have a chance. If we didn't, I said, yeah, but I'm bigger than all you guys. You guys are like, I'm like stocked, strong, like yeah. huge muscles and stuff back then. And I'm like, I got this. So I go up there and I pay my little door fee. And she says, all right, put your arms up. I'm going to search you. And I put my arms up and she goes to search me. And I said, hey, you know, this is the best part of my night, right? And nothing happened of it, right? I thought it was, she thought it was cheesy. And I was like, 
whatever. So I go on. Next weekend, we go back again. Next weekend, we go back again. And I kept using that same line over and over again. And I never gave up. And I said, are you going to ever let me, like, give you my number or something? And she was like, I thought you were never going to ask. So I got her number. We started talking. Three months later, we got married. And a year and a half later, we got divorced. (laughs) I didn't know she she wasn't a citizen. She used me to... Oh man! Yeah, I mean, I, I think she cared about me initially at first. Yeah, but then it became more about you know money, and she seen me buying all the cars all the time, and I'm always work like mechanic work while I'm in the military. I was making a ton of money. Yeah, and I had enough to fund these projects. You know, you know, five thousand dollar, ten thousand dollar engines here and there and stuff. And she was like using my money to however she wanted, taking trips. Yeah. And buying stuff for herself, three, four hundred dollars, six hundred dollar purses, four, five hundred dollar pairs of shoes and stuff like that. And I seen what was going on. And I was like, so I'm done with all this. I came back from a trip and there was a dog in my house that I I didn't buy no dog. I don't know what this is. It looked like a triple stuffed Oreo cookie. It was all smashed together <laughs> like a baby shih tzu thing. It was like a black head and then a white ring and then a black ring and a white ring and a black I was like, what is I thought we talk about stuff as a couple before we like have a baby or bring a dog into the house or something like that. And she's like, oh, I thought you'd be okay with it. We just thought I'd be okay with it. And then I'm like walking up the driveway and I see the Volkswagen. I had bought a Volkswagen. I want to do an engine swap because the engine was trashed. I bought it cheap. So I put an engine in it. Drove great after that. And I'm like, the car's plated? Oh, yeah, I signed the title and everything. And I like that car better than the car you bought me. So I put that car in my name. <laughs> get out yeah. you're done get out I'm done at this point I was like this is not happening man so I got a divorce and took a couple of years to do that but stayed in the automotive industry and well I was going to college at the time at Black River Technical College in Pocahontas Arkansas and I went for body school and I was working for an old man on 1958 to 1966 Thunderbirds I was living at his home it was a church that he turned into his home and he would travel the country selling customized poker chips and when you were in poker games at like casinos and stuff like that you could hey i'm still in the game i'm going to step away and you'd put your chip there indicating that you're still in the game you just need a break for a second and he would like casinos would make deals with him like give us two thousand of them at like a fifteen dollar a chip rate and he'd make a killing because it'd only make it only cost him like six bucks to make them right so he'd make a killing. He'd be like, "Just I want any young, young, smart guy to live at my house, my house, and work on all my classic cars." But this dude had cars from all over the country. 1958, 1960, 1964, 1966. I went and picked up an old uh, '64 Oldsmobile Starfire, a three deuce Cadillac, all these cars just all over the place and stuff. And I was at his home building these cars, painting them, engine work, package tray upholstery stuff, seat stuff. Who, who would trust some young kid <laughs> I know, right? that only has a few years experience even wrenching on anything with their classic cars, but he did. He saw the value in me and he, he gave me a flat $500 a week on saying if it was taxed or not. <laughs> <laughs> and I had a, uh, all bills paid and I was young. I didn't need anything. I didn't pay yeah. anything. So $500 a week to me was like, okay, I could do this. And then he stepped it up like $700 a week and then $800 a week. And then the, more better I did and the more cars I got done, the more money I made. And I was like angry at the time though. I was still dealing with a lot of things that happened from my past. Mm-hmm. A lot of those things were coming back. My nightmares were there and stuff. The stuff with Iraq was still there. 
But the more I wrenched and the more I really started getting involved in this industry, the more it started changing my life. And then eventually I was like, this is what I want to do. Yeah. This is where I'm at, man. This is, this makes me feel so much better being a part of the automotive industry. No matter what, at the end of the day, this is still, this is always going to be like my true love. People are like, it's not the military. No, it's not. I mean, I did that because that's what I had to do. Yeah. I needed, I needed structure in my life and I yeah. didn't have that. This is what saved my life. I don't know that I would be here today with my thoughts, the, the suicide things that I thought of at times and how I could just, I used to think maybe I could just go down the interstate like 100 mile an hour and just crash right into that pillar of that bridge and just be done. Yeah. Just have this over with. It'd, take, be, it'd be done just in yeah. seconds, not even feel a thing. And once I started working on cars and I started spending my time with that, putting energy that I had in my body into something else, right. my life changed. And I went to, you know, after going to body school and then going to UTI and doing like the automotive, the diesel, the Ford FAC program, the international MSAT program, and then going from them to, to working in the dirt sorting field, the earth moving field, and then back and forth to Ford and stuff. And now, you know, you know, I'm a, a co-owner of an independent shop, I'm the general manager there, but I have money invested in the company as well. So I tell everybody, it's not like I'm just a general manager. I have money in the company, I have a stake in the company, so it's different. Uh, I don't own as much as he does, yeah. but I own. Yeah. So a couple weeks ago, just so you know, if uh, anybody doesn't have a story like that, just don't bother telling them. It's wild. <laughs> It, you downplayed it quite a bit, and that's that's the clean. And you should be ashamed. Of that's the cleaned up version <laughs> of everything because we it, we would be sitting here forever. That's the clean. That's up wild, version. dude. You need to write a book. So I started, I will buy that that copy of that book. I started writing it, and I got about two hundred and fifty pages written and written in Iraq, and I was I was writing it up. And you still have those two hundred fifty pages? No, no. Here's why. We're in the middle of a war zone. There's people that are, it's not like the, oh man, people are dying left and right. No, we did have people die. We, we, we had members from the unit we were replacing die while they were leaving in the last couple of days of being there. It's called right seat ride, left seat ride. You ride in a certain position of the vehicle. Right seat ride is you ride in the right seat. They ride in the driver's seat. They show you the area. The second week, you ride in the left seat. They ride in the right seat. You show them that you know the area. And then once they're comfortable, they can, they can leave. Uh, yeah. They can leave. Uh, we had people get hurt the last couple of days of being there because that's some of the most critical times. So I had a lot of bad thoughts. Did the, did the people know that you're switching troops and would get more aggressive? Like, what do you mean by that? They could tell. They, they, could tell. they could tell different people that they would normally see in the driver's seat. Normal, All of a sudden different, switching. Different people in the turret, different people dismounted on patrol when you're going door to door doing like information knocks yeah. in people's homes and stuff. And then that's when they would try to do something. They, they knew. They knew that there was this transition going on. Either they could try to take advantage of you then or they could wait for that unit to leave. And the newbies, the cherries would be on the ground. And they didn't know the area as quite as well as they should. Yeah. And they would try to set them up trigger points. Um, oh my goodness! It could be all kinds of different things. So, I, I I've got a lot of questions, and and I I think the first I want to know is your parents. Oh, hold on, hold on. 
Well, you didn't finish the, the okay. book. The book, the book. Oh, oh yeah. So yeah, yeah. I would get to reading what I wrote and I would get so emotional and those bad thoughts would start and those, like, I would feel like I wanted to just start yeah. punching people and, and just, yeah, just yeah, yeah, throwing yeah. stuff. Yeah. And I would get so mad when I would start reading this story and, and I would, I'd go to tear it up and then I couldn't and I'd go to tear it up and I couldn't and then one day they had the fire pit out back. And I was really angry that day. It was a day that we had went through like a 14-hour patrol, and I took that, and I threw it away, and I deleted everything off my laptop, and I said, I don't think I'm ready for this right now. I think in my in my adult life, once I get older and more mature, maybe. Yeah, you were still a baby then. I just couldn't handle it. Yeah. And I can, I can now. I just don't have the strength. I need with the business and everything now, and then I'm trying to think when is the right time. I mean, you're, you're a talker though, dude. Just yeah. into an audio, into an audio file, yeah. and then it can get transcribed yeah. and then edited. You got to get it out there, dude. That's a wild story, man. Um, um, I think my biggest question is your parents now, right? Because I mean, I, when you talk about them, I can like feel the emotion. Oh, <laughs> and I can feel the that connection. You know what I'm saying? We what? just reunited after uh, uh, almost six years because I just took the job at Dundee Ford back in the day, and I'm standing out front of my my. Uh, I got done really really dirty at a, at a Ford dealership down in Gino, Louisiana, and uh, they. I told him, I, I haven't given you a one-month notice. My father's in the hospital; he's sick. I'm going to go back home to my family and stuff like that. But you got a month to find a certified tech. Mm -hmm. It's not easy to find a fully certified Ford tech in a month. Right. Yeah, There's right. not somebody in a small town that's ready to walk, you know, walk up and say, "Hey, I'm ready to be your Ford tech." Yeah, and and he was upset, and I, I get it. I assume some of that responsibility because, but then at the same time, the business is still business. The guy didn't want to pay me. Yeah, uh, he held, he withheld my pay, and then I found out how how this this is maybe topic in the future for for us. This is how screwed up the system is that a lot of shop owners, they either don't know or they know how to use the system or techs don't know. Um, when you are working in an industry like we're working in and you leave the business or you get fired, your contract with that business, doesn't matter if you're making $40 an hour or not, is not legal in most states to the actual labor board. That's between you and me, that's what you're paying me through this agreement on paper. But the labor board only has to enforce what minimum wage is times the amount of hours clocked in. Anything more than that, I have to fight you in small claims court or civil court. They can't make an employer adhere to it. If they're opinion. withholding your, if they're withholding your, your wages. Right. And that's okay. what happened is the guy just flat out refused to pay me. It was like $2,700. Sue me. And he said, no, you're not going to sue me because you're going to spend just as much money in court trying to sue me as you are. I should That's in Louisiana. Yeah. That it's it's a state-by-state state thing. Yeah, I think it is. they get really aggressive in other states and they get – you saw – did you ever see the, the oily penny thing? I don't think so. Yeah, we did a video about oily pennies where um, – yeah, This was in Georgia. The guy the guy was withholding a check. And and he finally acquiesces. The shop owner acquiesces and said, "Okay, fine, I'll pay you." But he paid the guy like nine hundred ten dollars in pennies, and then oiled them up in gear oil, and then dumped them out in the guy's driveway, which you know is hilarious. But <laughs> the the state—I guess it depends on which side you are. 
<laughs> you were, yeah, I very vindictive. You know, don't do that. Bad juju for for you. Bad karma. Um, I, I went to the labor board and I told them what was going on, and they were like, "Look, you have a case, but it's not a case for me to yeah. get you all your money." Yeah, you can, only the state law only says yeah, but in Georgia, the labor board found out about that deal and yeah. came after the came after the the shop owner mm. and they were at that point now it's a full audit now they're going through all your your time stamps and how yeah. much you paid them and who got shorted and then you're getting fees on top of every penny that they find off that's why it's so important for technicians i know they don't want to do it but as as a shop owner as a technician that's you're you're trying to make sure you're getting paid what you're where you're Somewhat of what your value is. Yeah, at least. Especially in a situation like this. A lot of technicians have this mindset, I'm flat rate anyway. I don't need to be on the clock. I Whatever. They'll fix it later. That will bite you. Oh. That will bite you. That's good advice. Yeah. That is really good advice. That is good advice. Always be clocked in. No matter what. Very important. Because a situation like this, I didn't have a way to actually prove because I was one of those technicians that thought after this, I never did that again. But wait a second, I spent like 60 hours a week at this place. Can I prove that? No, I can't. Well, and even even back to job clocks, because we did a video a while back, and, and a lot of techs hate job clocks. And we did a video with uh, Murray Voth talking about job clocks. And he's like, dude, it has nothing to do with policing the tech. Right. It has to do that you can show them like, hey, I'm actually working on this car, and here's the time it's taking me. We can make sure the rest of the business is efficient. Yeah. Right. But they yeah. all, it, it always comes back like, hey, no, we, we, you know, we don't want to do that because they always feel like it's watching them and it's monitoring them. It doesn't have anything to do with that. And so you're right. A lot of techs aren't trying to clock in and out. They're not trying to watch their hours. And I tell my guys all the time, like, hey, clock in and out properly. Yeah. Because then we can tell if we're efficient. We can tell if our utilization is good. And more than anything, it protects you if something ever happens. Yeah, that. You know what I mean? Yeah. What happens if something happens to me? Yeah. Right? And they don't, whoever else comes in doesn't know. And then they go back and they look at all those labor hours and and they see that you were clocked in 120 hours a week because you forgot to clock in and out. And you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. that's one of the things we deal with in the shop is they, they forget to clock out. And so they'll be clocked in the whole weekend. Yeah, the entire week. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, yeah, so, so, you know, I... I I left that job to come back home. I came back home. I got in a union job. Okay. Uh, I have opinions on unions, so it's that's I've already spoke about that, uh, good and bad. Um, it was a good job. They treated me well, though. Okay. They really did. And when I when I was like five or six months into this job, uh, the foreman came out, and when I had I had told him, I was like, I, I'm I'm gonna quit. I'm gonna take another job. I just told him straight. I was like, look, man. I'm going to end up quitting. I'm just telling you. Mm-hmm. I love this place and I love working for you. I love the work yeah. that we do. I've learned a lot since I've I've been working on on heavy-duty stuff. Right. But I'm not going to be here long term. I've already got another job offer for $5 more an hour. Medical yeah. benefits paid. Non-union. There's no more dues. The medical is better than what's here. And it's a it's a uh, independent owner. It's a chain, but it was an independent owner that owned everything. Yeah. And he's making my benefits better. Than being in the union. So uh, while we're on this, let, let's talk about that for a minute because that is one thing that we keep hearing from technicians who say we need to unionize, we need to unionize, we need to unionize, and they they automatically go back to us and say, "Well, you don't want you don't want us to unionize because you're shop owners." Right. No, I mean we we literally 
want what's best for technicians and we want what's best for shop owners and we want what's best for service advisors, right? Because that's the only way. And, and you know, on the panel, we talked about it today. I've said it over and over again. Like we, we get where we're going by working together. Yeah. If we're divided constantly, we're not moving forward in one direction. We're not getting anywhere. We're just, right. we're in constant mode of infighting. Nothing ever changes. And so that's one of the things that we believe in fixing is like, hey, let's all get on the same page, whatever that page is. And I don't know about you, but I, I, I don't know that the union is the answer. No. To, to me, I, I don't think it's the answer. What I like best mm-hmm. is a shop owner that comes out to his employees. He makes them feel wanted. I do want yeah. you here. I do need you here. I can't do this without you. Yeah. We're all part of the same family. I'm going to pay you fair. I'm going to make sure I'm taking care of you respectively across the board. Yeah. I don't need a union to make sure that I'm sending you Amen. training yeah. and that I'm taking care of you. Amen. And if I can keep that extra stress out of my life and more people start following it, it, it you know, uh, in suit by trend or whatever, the fact that we're doing the right thing and we're doing that for our people yeah. and more and more people start to do that. Then we don't have to see these articles and stuff in the news and the paper about some union, you know, executives or whatever that are being toted off to prison for extortion and yeah. embezzling and all this other stuff. We're handling that at our own level with our own people, keeping the extra stress out of yes. it, more money in their pockets, more money for the business. And I know there's a purpose for unions. Union, you, you, uh, maybe 30 years ago there was. I'm still not not seeing the purpose anymore. And that's my that's the that's the opinion of mine that most people don't like and they try to attack me on is because I've been union, I've been done wrong by union, but I've also done re I mean the people that are running the company under the umbrella of the union or something like that, they have to be good. They have yeah. to they have to want to do Just their job. Just because it's a union does not mean that it's all good and right. it's all well and that it's honest and it's ethical and things work like it's supposed to. Right. And I get tons of people since I've started speaking out about this whole UAW strike and stuff in I have got messages of of foremen that are telling me, hey, man, uh, I just watched your video and you're 100% right. This whole UAW strike thing, none of this makes any sense to me because now we're being told because of the strike, my guys that support some of these, like this particular uh, manufacturing plant, they're going to be laid off in a few weeks because now we don't have work for our guys that do the painting or the building or making sure the machines are running right. So while they're affect us too, we can't, yeah. I can't get parts. Yeah. It's going to affect us. The first day it happened, there's a guy on TikTok called diesel daddy, mm-hmm. real humble guy, funny, big old teddy bear. Yeah. And he said, I just went to Chrysler and I tried to get four TPMS sensors, TPMS sensors for a 3,500 Cummins or Dodge. She said, I think he said Cummins or something like that. I knew what he was talking about. And he says, I went to the Chrysler dealer to pick it up or the Ram dealer and, and they told me that they, because they just officially started the strike at three o'clock, something about they have to re-inventory everything that they have and that they can't sell me the TPMS sensors mm-hmm. right now because of everything that's going on and that it may end up getting to a point where their dealership has to have everything by VIN to even get it. You can't just go in there and say, I need these parts. Now yeah. they're going to have to track what's going out because they need to be able to monitor their inventory because they don't have the extra stuff to give to people because they didn't prepare for it. Yeah. So now it now it, it's hurting him. It's going to hurt that dealership. Affect everybody. It's going it's going to mess with yeah. everybody. And I I talk about these things and then you get the the workers that are like, man, my union ain't never had a problem. We ain't never done anything like. That. And I'm like, oh, 
Really? You work at the Chicago plant or you work at the Iowa plant? I just saw two other UAW workers in my comment section that work at the same plant as you that's saying you're all chewed up. I mean, yeah. what is it, bro? Are you just trying to yeah. are you just trying to protect them? I mean, right. I'm trying to make sense of this stuff right now. Yeah, for sure. How do, how do you think um, from from an economic standpoint, the administration has quite the conundrum because they have to have a strong, vibrant economy going into the election season, not one that's handled with massive hiccups because oh. of a strike. But also, he can't come out and say, hey, we got to end this and, and end this now. No, they moved it to what? They were, they were just a few locations to 38 locations, oh, yeah, and now they're like— and we're going across the whole country like this. It's going to be crazy. It's going to get. It's going to be bad. Yeah. And then this is the only time that he shows support to like the American workers. And now he's going to be out there picketing with them and stuff. Like, come on, man. Let's forget the photo op here. And this, you yeah. know, I understand it's for the tabloids, but let's but be real here. Let's serve the American worker. Yeah, we need. You could fix this. Like it, Brandon from Performance Transmission. Me and him were talking. Yeah, and I was like, so let's let's look at the numbers. And he said. Let's do some research here, both of us, and let's figure out, mm-hmm. based on statistics, he was like, it's $7.1 trillion the shareholders made. How do people make that much money and the executives continue to make that much money while the workers don't make anything? Why would you go after the consumer in this aspect and ru- like other other unions that support your union, take them or put them out of work and lay them off for them to find other contracts with other facilities and stuff I would be going to the people that are making all the money saying, hey, no, 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 no. How about we just stop working for you completely unless you're unless you're willing to pay? Where's yeah. all the money at? The, I, I, I know I it doesn't quite work that way. But yeah, the, the problem is that they're the, the the executive pay is 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 an issue. I, I don't I don't begrudge that at the same time there and from their side. Uh, of the argument it's that's what it costs to bring in a talented executive right for me to bring in a talented cfo or cto or ceo it costs as much sure. I, I can't do anything about what it costs that's just the prevailing wage i could see that that's that's their argument i don't know maybe we could argue that one the money that goes down to the shareholders though that's like that's the grandma that's living off the pension that's the school teacher that's got invested in 401k. Like that's, those are regular, normal, everyday making $45,000 a year Americans. That, that's who has that. That's who has a chunk of, because it's inside of a mutual fund and the mutual fund is purchased by the, by the individual. Part of that is feeding that mutual fund in that it, they have an obligation to funnel as much money to them as possible. Like that's their job. The job of the executive is to make sure that every penny is pinched and that as much money goes back to the shareholder as humanly possible. Yeah. There's no way around that. They, and it's, in fact, illegal for them not. That, that's why the whole DEI thing is getting a little sketchy yeah. or the um, uh, environment governance and, yep. uh, and social uh, the EGS stuff. That, that stuff there, if they, if they abandon their obligation to the shareholders in order to push some societal agenda 
it can get a little hairy with the with the laws because all of a sudden they've abandoned their obligations mm-hmm. and now the shareholders have a way to to sue these executives for not doing their job. Their job is to maximize shareholder value. That's their job. Sure. Yeah. But to demand 32-hour work weeks? Yeah. Come on. Well, demand 40 in 32. They want to pay the, to be 40 hours a week in, in, 32. Only in 32 hours. And then they want guaranteed pensions. Guaranteed pensions. They want. Uh, which, which was what? Bankrupted them in the 80s and 90s. Like, like a 40% increase over the next four years or something like how that. How do we in, not look back and go, hey, what, what ruined the American auto workers 40 years ago? Let's do that again. Yeah. How's that even? I, you know, and, and I think a lot of it comes back to, to those sitting at the top of those unions have to make a grandiose statement. And, and I, I, I think they obviously know they're not going to get everything they want out of this. Sure. So they're, they're trying to shoot high and they want them to come back in the middle while they're, they're saying, look, we're not even going to be able to come back in the middle. We're going to have to go like way down here off the chart down below that, you know? Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I, I don't know the answer to that. I I, can, I understand the need for the union. I really do, and especially in this particular situation. But you you look at if you're if you're just the guy that wants to go to work, like you you move to Tennessee and you go work at the Nissan plant. <laughs> they're <Yeah>. non-union, <laughs> and it's huge. And they're still working. They're still working. Toyota's still working. Honda's still working and you know you're just like hey I'm really good at this I like doing this factory job it affords me a lot of flexibility and freedom like and I'm not going to deal with this BS I'm bouncing stone cold like yeah blue collar people or whatever they're like well, if you don't like it then go get a job where you like it yeah I mean I understand yeah. it's not that easy for everybody but it is easy for a lot of you and there are other places that will really take you that want your talent that know they want something that you there's an aspect of fear there yeah that they're afraid to make that move yeah and they know what they have right now and the unknown is far scarier than absolutely the, than the no right and so that's one of the things that we keep telling techs is like hey there are good shops out there we know there's good shops if you're being treated like shit get out of your shop yeah. Leave. Why are you, why are you staying? Because if, if the, the problem is, is if we don't ever make a statement and get away from where we are right now and stop tolerating the bad behavior, it doesn't get better. Right. Yeah. And, and I think in a lot of ways, see, see, there's a misconception that that's what's happening right now. No, that's not what's happening right now. Maybe a little bit. But what's happening right now is there's no text coming into the industry. And there's no techs coming into blue collar trades whatsoever. There's no one that wants to do hard work anymore. That's, I mean, I, I've got the report. I'll show you the report. Yeah. That's what the statistics well, say. That, that, that's what the dude was saying. So that's a marketing issue. He, yeah. he was making the argument. I'm not, to a certain degree, I think he's right. Yeah, so I'm where sure. I, where I went with that were, so Dundee Ford, I go work for Dundee Ford. They give me the raise. They pay for everything. You were asking about my parents. And I kind of took a high. We, we, we haven't talked in like about six years, but we've recently re- rekindled everything. So I, I want to ask, why, why had you not talked in six years? So what ended up happening is I wanted to take this job at Dundee Ford, and I wanted to leave the union. And I'm standing out front of my, uh, my house uh, in Rockford, Illinois, and talking to my father. 
And I said, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to take a new job at this. It's much more promising. Like I understand the whole union pension thing and everything else, but do I want to really be working on over the road equipment long term? I'm never going to go anywhere with this big company. I'm always going to get taken care of. Don't get me wrong. They do take care of you. And the, the, the union was great. The pay was great. The benefits were great, but I want more for myself. And I feel like with my certifications and all my schooling and stuff like that, I would be much more appreciated going to this Ford dealer. It's not, you know, at the time, I think they were, they were 140 plus locations. They're like the largest truck dealership repair shop in the entire world at the time. Mm -hmm. And they were worried. I think people worried about them monopolizing. They continue to grow and shut down other shops and turn them into rush truck centers and, mm -hmm. yeah. and stuff. And they're a great facility, great people to work for. And, I just wanted something different. So I was telling him about it and my father was like, I don't know, Rich, you know, financially, the pension stuff, the, I don't know if I would chase the $5 an hour. I said, dad, do you understand what that equates to at the end of the day, the end of the week, the end of the month, the end of the year? Yeah. And I'm not putting in dues. It's 100% platinum plan paid for. Mm -hmm. That's a big deal for somebody to bring a tech in that they don't even know just from word of mouth and say, I'm willing to give you all this. Mm -hmm. Come work for me. All you got to do is meet with my service manager. If you guys kick it off, you're good and you're good, you're hired. Yeah. So I said, that's what I want to do. And he said, I don't know. I don't think it's a good idea. I think you should stay exactly where you're at. You're already starting to establish yourself. You're doing really good. And I said, nah, I, dad, let me worry about my financial stuff, man to man. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm in my thirties now at this point. I'm like, let me, let me worry about my financial stuff, please pops. I'm here for yeah. you no matter what. But I, I know me. I know this industry. I've been in long enough now to know where it's not uncommon for a technician or a mechanic to move from location to location to location. It mm. used to be frowned upon back in the day. Right. But now, now it's in, common. Yeah. Now in this industry, we know that they're typically either they're shitheads or they're trying to better themselves. Yeah. It's one or the other. And you can get a feel for that as an owner. You know how to feel, oh, yeah. feel that out. And I said, I really like these people. They seem sincere. They seem like they'll... And I loved it. The first few years of working there, me and him never talked again after that. I mean, for, for six years because he didn't like the fact that I was downplaying his advice to me. Mm -hmm. And he didn't like the fact that I told him I, I really wished that he would let me deal with my financial stuff and not kind of get involved in that. I haven't needed yeah. money or anything from my parents in years. Yeah. You know, I'm an adult now. I should be able to take care of this and make these decisions. But I'm sitting at home like two months ago. And I'm thinking about everything that I've been through. Some of those old feelings and stuff started coming back. And I'm like, man, I'm about to get married next year. And I don't have my mom and my dad. It's time to put this ego stuff away and, and just call my pops up and just be like, look, dude, I apologize, man. I don't even care if it was my fault yeah. or not. I don't care. I love you, man. And I, I want you to be a part of my life. I want you to be in my wife's life, my future wife's life, my, my daughter's life and stuff like that. The daughter is not she. Her daddy never wanted to be in her life. Yeah. So my fiance has a little girl by another man that never wanted to be part of it. And I've took her under my wing and, you know, I'm, she's my everything. And uh, I want you to be a part of their life. And my mom's crying on the phone and my dad's crying on the phone. And then he's like, oh, my God, let's schedule like a, a dinner where we can all get together. And we all got together and my dad's crying when he's meeting the family and stuff like that. He said, please don't ever do anything like that to me again. I, I love you, man. I, you're, you're everything I got and stuff. And I was like. Pops, I, I don't, sorry, it took me so long to, to suck that ego and stuff up, but I'm, I am sorry. And I don't, 
I just want to be here. I want to be in your life. And it was so emotional when we were leaving because he started crying all over again, saying goodbye to everybody and stuff. And, and uh, you know, it, he he's lost a lot of weight. Um, he He's in uh, not the best of health, but he looks better than what he did before. It was nice seeing him. He's 100 pounds lighter than what he was. Yeah. So this is almost a completely new man to me. Yeah. All my cousins have had two and three kids over the last six years now. And now they, one of the cousins, I mean, he, his, his uh, father-in-law turned over the construction company to him. And now he's the boss of the construction company and stuff. And what, when you look back at that six years, mm. I don't want to say, was it worth it? That's not what I'm, it's not what I'm trying to get. I wish I would have never done it. Yeah. I wish I would have just said. I wish I would have just shut my mouth and let him be a part of my life. I would have still made the decision politely. Mm-hmm. I didn't have to say, you know, just let me be an adult and I'll I'll deal with these things. You know, these yeah. I could have just said, Dad, I appreciate what you have to say. I'm going to sit down and I'm going to make the best informed decision I could possibly make. And I love you no matter what. And it would have been fine. Yeah. I look back at so many decisions I've made in my life. And I realized that it doesn't matter if they were right or wrong. In other words, what what my family, my dad, my mom, what they were telling me, it doesn't matter if they were right or wrong. It was that they would have never given me advice that they thought was wrong. Right. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And so they thought they were giving me the best direction possible. And so sometimes when we're young or sometimes when we're, we're full of piss and vinegar and we look at that situation and – Somebody's there trying to give us advice. Emotion overweighs fact. Yeah. And and they're sitting there and they're trying to give us, they're trying to pour their heart out and say, don't make the mistake I made or don't do the thing that I did. And I, I was so blessed because, and, and I say this almost every episode, my dad, every time I went to do something stupid, would just sit back and chuckle at me and just laugh. And it always pissed me off. And now I'm looking back and thinking, he knew I was going to do what I was going to do anyway. He told me, you know, and that was his way of saying, son, this is a stupid idea. Why are you going to do this? I'm telling you, this is stupid, you know? And now I look back and I think all of the division that I caused, all of the pain that I caused them, all the pain I caused myself didn't have to happen, right? But the fact that they're willing to forgive us for that, yeah, you know what I mean? Because yeah. at the end of the day, it's like, it was like that has been bothering me for the last six years, not being able to pick up the phone and talk to them, not yeah. being able to communicate, not having them a part of my life through all my successes over the last six years. And my mom and my dad, they're asking, the, so do you still work at the Ford dealership? And I said, no, I moved on from there. And I was talking to Navistar and I was talking to Rush Truck Centers all over again. And they want me at the corporate level to run the shop and run the work at Navistar as a main diag. Like I was, they were interviewing me for a job that, I would be a liaison between the dealership, the truck, the truck dealerships and the customer, but also be in the middle of is the engineers responding? Are the tech line guys responding properly? Is the dealership doing what they're supposed to do? They wanted me in a like a tattletale position of checking in on everybody to make sure the customer's being satisfied at a corporate level. And my job was to evaluate them and make sure the engineers are getting back. Hotline's getting back. The dealership's doing what they're supposed to. The customer's checking back in. And I was like, 
that's an interesting job. I could probably learn a lot from that position and get yeah. all sides of what's going on. Yeah. And then I thought, you know, I don't want to go in in a suit every single day. I don't want to go in all proper in like an office and stuff every single day. And then I, they wanted to interview me for writing the wiring diagrams and the tech line or the, the pinpoint tests. And I yeah. was like, you know, I've got another offer as a co-owner GM type situation and it pays the same money. I'm not done being a mechanic. I mean, I love yeah. this stuff. I, I mean, if they're, if we're ever in a spot at the shop where I'm down a guy or like, you know, my lead guy, I know I can resuit up, get out there and I'm on the floor or, and then yeah. get back to doing what I'm doing. If I need to, I still got it. I still teach them all the time. And the difference in, and I guess you can say that, that it may upset some people when you say certain things, vers dealer versus independent shop. Yeah. What I benefit coming from the dealer is all the structured training. Yeah. And when I bring that into the shop where I'm at, where these guys have worked at the minor keys, the mom and pop independent shops and everything else is a lot of them have never put their guys through formal training. So they don't know how to look at a wiring diagram or yeah. they don't know what a load or like a, um, load testing a wire or something is yeah. or voltage drop or they don't understand those like they know but they don't yeah it and doesn't make sense then they're just numbers on the screen it doesn't and then i bring that aspect into it and they're like hey i i'm having pro a problem getting this ball joint out of this thing over here and i'm like all right right yeah pretty big guy let's <laughs> suit up for a second and yeah. i got three guys on the same ball joint and they can't get it out and i said fellas you're overthinking this process. You're trying to take a hammer and then use this hammer to hit into that hammer so you don't damage the control arm. But there are strategic strike points that they build into these because they know sometimes you're going to have to do that. That's why you see fatter areas in some areas than others. Yeah. And we use that as a standard practice. Get, move out of my way for a second. I'll show you. I'm like, it's, you know, you're using your purse over here with this two or three pound hammer. Let's grab this five pound hammer over right. there. And I whack that sucker right in a sweet spot and drops right out of there. And they look at me like, Man, how did you do that? All the so, experience, man. So talking training. Yeah. We're at ASTE 2023. Mm-hmm. You've taken management classes. Yeah, the highlight um, for me so far has been uh, Malin's class. I mean, there are so many things that this, that this gentleman talked about that I didn't even realize. Like, I could be so much more efficient in other areas and taking yeah. care of things. And if, if you can just, if you can just get one thing out of this entire class, it would be like a Cecil or Malin class that, that would be just absolutely yeah. amazing. And his class covered so much in, in my life and my business and stuff yeah. in general that I'm sitting here thinking about these things and I'm like, man, I'm making this so much more complicated yeah. for myself. <laughs> no, right. Had I have not known. Yeah. And then you reaching out to me and being like, Hey, man. I got something for you. Yeah. Get in it. Got at least one time. Got to see it at least and once. And then I'm here and I'm like, dude, what have I been missing out on? Yeah, this is so crazy. And, and, and like, I, I, the dealer guys never realized that something like this exists, right? No. They're never told about that because they, you know, David's always talking about it. They don't want you to know how the sausage is made. Well, that's what this is, right? The right. dealers don't really, or the manufacturers don't really want you to know what's out there as far as this goes. And, and so technicians can come here and they can take management classes. 
They can take owner classes. They can take service advisor classes. They can take technical classes, like nothing you've ever seen before. Advanced, advanced classes, right? And so the opportunity to sit in these classes, and if nothing else, Rich, the ability to understand unconscious incompetence, right? To understand, I didn't know that. I didn't even know that was a thing. And, and because I didn't know it was a thing, and I didn't understand that it was a potential effect on my business, Right? right? And now all of a sudden to at least have conscious incompetence, right? Now I know that this exists and I know there's this information. Right. It becomes a journey just like your journey, right? We begin to take steps. This is the, I keep, it's been playing in my head since yesterday when Malin started talking about it and he said, uh, one of the things that employees lack the most is direction. An expectation. Yep. Are you doing that? Are you really doing that? Right. Because a lot of owners, managers, yeah, they don't give that direction and expectation. Yeah. And if you set that, those employees will learn how you want things done. So yep. when you're not there, they're still getting done. And, and here's the thing is how many how many owners do we know? That don't set the expectation because they, they want to be nice guys. Yeah. And they think that's what their employees want. Right. But the employee really wants direction. The employee really wants guidance. The employee really wants information about, hey, here's what a win is and here's what a loss is. Right. And if you don't give me that information and I don't know what that is, then I'm always in a state of wondering, am I doing good? Am right. I doing bad? Am I winning? Am I losing? Right. You know? And so that that's been a big thing for me. Yeah, it's and and I you know I talked to my partner and stuff about it, and then uh, you know I got a text message from him. It made me feel good. I'm not tooting my own horn, but you know I keep it as a now I got a, I got a receipt now, and he right. says, "Hey man, I'm in Cecil's class right now, and a lot of the things that you've told me that you've learned are exactly what he's saying." And I said, <laughs> "I've learned it from guys like him. That's why." Yeah. And I'm just trying to pass it off to you. I'm not trying to be a burden to you, and I'm not trying to to make you feel like you're not doing something correctly. But darn it, if you're not doing something yeah. correctly, you're just not doing it correctly. And these guys will set you straight, and that's how it is. I'm, I'm excited for him to be here. Yeah, because I've I've heard some of the pain in your voice with some of the things that have happened. Yeah, and for him to be here, and him to be listening, him to be taking it in. I think you're going to go back to a very different experience. Hey, when he was done with Cecil's class, he said, I think I'm going to go back and fire everybody. And I was like, <laughs> I was no, like don't do that. <laughs> no, I said, no, 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 no. Hey, go to, go to Malin's class first before you decide yeah. that, please, because he will, he will talk to you about the answer is not always firing people. Yeah. It's coaching them up. Yeah. It's, it's trying to make them a better person. Yeah. The expectation and the direction can fix a lot of things. Yeah. And then some individual stuff. Honing in on how to make them a better tech or employee can't make them, but you can try. Amen. And it's there. And you just have to be willing to put in the effort to do it and maybe understand at their level what's going on. And I said, that's what I took away from his class. Changed my whole perspective yeah. on how I'm – and it wasn't bad how I was doing business. It's just so many open areas that Where all these gaps are filled things in. things could improve everything. Everything. Make life so much better. Yeah. Awesome. Yep. Thank you for being here, brother. That was a killer, killer episode. Thank you for listening to the Changing the Industry podcast. If you enjoyed the show, do us a favor and leave us a review on your favorite podcast player.
and don't forget to set it to automatically download the latest episode. Our efforts with this podcast, the YouTube channel, and the Facebook group wouldn't be possible without the support of our awesome sponsors. So please take a moment, check them out by clicking on the links in the show notes.